0: The Avengers. The Justice League. The X-Men. Dream teams were the most powerful people in the world came together to fight for something. Usually to save humanity from like robots or aliens or megalomaniac businessmen or whatever. We have dream teams of the most powerful people in the real world too. Except they aren't fighting for good. They're fighting for something else. Money. You've probably heard about this crazy thing called America's healthcare system, which from a labyrinth of high drug prices, copays, medical debt and more, is not very good for most people. Even the 49% of Americans who get health insurance from their employer, or really their employers who are paying for that. So why would we have a system that's not very good? That's what we're going to look at today, why the United States has the health care system it does, and the dream team that's come together to protect the status quo. For decades in America, there have been attempts to reform health care.
1: The very first promise I made on this campaign was that as president, I will sign a universal health care plan into law by the end of my first term in office. We have to preserve and strengthen what is right with the healthcare system, but we have got to fix
2: what is wrong with it. The fact of the matter is that what we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. The British did it 30 years ago.
0: 30 years before John F. Kennedy gave that speech was 1932. Healthcare basically never gets reformed. And that's where the dream team comes in. In 2018, the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future was formed. You could also call it the Healthcare Industrial Complex, an alliance of the big players, private insurers, big pharma, hospitals, and more, who make a lot of money off of the system that they kind of built themselves. And they're just the most recent supergroup that has emerged to block healthcare reform in the United States, one of many in a long history. So, who is the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from now this, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, we're talking about our youngest subject ever. It's only three years old. When I was three, I was slobbering all over myself. But the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future is already controlling our healthcare future.
3: The Partnership for America's Healthcare Future is like a giant conglomerate of the top players in the healthcare system.
0: That's Carl Evers-Hillstrom, a reporter at the Center for Responsive Politics.
3: So we track everything to do with money in politics. Uh, So political donations, lobbying and even, you know, the personal finances of members of congress. Just following the money uh, wherever we can.
0: Following the money in healthcare is a lot of work because there's
3: a lot of money to follow.
0: How much does the healthcare industry spend on lobbying compared to other sectors? How much money are we looking at here?
3: The health sector is pretty much the top spender every year. So, you know, in 2020 we saw the health sector spent 615 million dollars on lobbying, which was actually a A record year for the sector. So they top the spending every single year, and that money is just the money they report spending on lobbying. Um, There's a lot more money uh, spent to influence policy that really isn't included in that figure.
0: Yes, healthcare spending dwarfs every other kind of money in politics spending, including finance, real estate, energy, and natural resources, transportation. Healthcare even beats the military industrial complex, and by hundreds of millions of dollars, it's not even close. I almost feel bad for the military-industrial complex.
3: The healthcare sector really is lobbying to keep the status quo in check um, because in a lot of cases they have written the rules that govern our healthcare system today. Um, So they have a vested interest in keeping those rules in place.
0: We're not going to spend a lot of time today talking about how the status quo isn't working. Just like climate change, you probably already know that story. If not, ask five friends, and I'm sure at least all of them we will have a story. So let's get back to these interest groups and that giant conglomerate in particular, the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future.
3: So really everyone you could think of that um, has influence within the healthcare system, within the healthcare sector, is a part of this group for the most part. So that includes the top pharmaceutical lobbying group, um, the very biggest private insurers like Blue Cross Blue Shield, as well as the leading for-profit hospital groups.
0: If you go to the partnership's website, they have a pretty massive list of members. From, yeah, big pharma, health insurers, and hospitals, to chambers of commerce, farm bureaus, and organizations like the Virginia Automobile Dealers Association and the Master Builders of Iowa. What's important here, though, is that the partnership represents an alliance of interests that have previously been at odds.
3: You know, the the various forces within the Healthcare supply chain are not often not aligned. So, you know, for example, insurers and pharmaceutical companies have been fighting over drug pricing bills for a long time, launching you know ads uh, blaming each other for the rising cost of drugs. You know, physician groups and insurers have had massive lobbying battles over legislation to stop um, surprise medical bills. So. It's very rare to see these sort of competing forces who are really battling for airspace in Congress actually agree on something.
0: Huh, interesting. So what do they all agree on?
3: It's really single payer healthcare, Medicare for all is really the one issue where uh, everyone in the healthcare sector agrees. Uh, It should not become law.
0: We're gonna get into this later, but because you hear it all the time and nobody ever bothers to explain exactly what it is, Medicare for All is about a lot of things, but at a fundamental level, it's basically about who pays for healthcare. In a big picture Medicare for All situation, just about everybody who provides care to patients, from doctors to hospitals to pharmaceuticals, is reimbursed by the federal government at set rates, after copays and deductibles. Medicare for All is almost a single payer system. Not all squares are rectangles, but all rectangles are squares. Anyway, back to Carl Evers-Hillstrom.
3: Medicare for all is literally an existential threat to the private insurance industry. I mean, depending on the plan, the the industry would either go away or would become a sort of minor player for wealthy individuals.
0: A big part of this has to do with equitable access to care. Wealthy people are always going to have access to good health care because they can afford it. But back to the story. How do big pharma and big hospitals feel about Medicare for All?
3: It would drastically reduce the profits of uh, drug makers as well as for-profit hospitals. So yes, they are, they are protecting their interests. And that's, that's what interest groups are there to do, is to make sure that their industry, that their employees, that their executives are protected, um, and that they're not losing out from legislation from Congress.
0: The partnership exists mostly because the big players have a lot to lose.
3: Some industries are going to get hurt more than others by Medicare for All, but they they can all agree that they oppose it. And that's, I mean, it's very rare to find a policy that they all disagree with. Normally, within the private insurance, within, you know, legislation relating to the private uh, healthcare industry, there will be winners and losers um, within the supply chain. With Medicare for All, they're all losers in some respect.
0: Here's a partnership ad. And you'll notice that another term comes up, the public option. Don't worry, we'll get to that too.
1: Like every mom, I care a lot about my family's health care. The new government-controlled health insurance systems politicians are pushing are a real threat to our health care coverage and yours. Medicare for all, Medicare buy-in, and the public option won't lower our health care cost.
0: Here's Carl Evers-Hillstrom.
3: The partnership ran a extensive TV ad campaign during the presidential primaries, um, a lot of ads in Iowa uh, saying that, you know, Medicare for all was the wrong way, that it was a very dangerous proposal. And then they also ran a million dollars worth of ads um, through election day, you know, arguing that, you know, we should build on Obamacare and not start all over with Medicare for all. They placed those ads in like swing states that were having the you know, a key presidential race as well as a key Senate race like uh, North Carolina, Michigan. And they also placed ads in like the Democratic National Convention. So they definitely wanted like Democratic voters to see this. And we're really trying to sway their opinion.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Democrats? I thought they were the ones supposed to be supporting healthcare reform.
3: If there's anything that we have unity on, it's taking money from the health industries um, taking you know, donations from executives. We see that players within the healthcare system make massive donations to super PACs and dark money groups allied with, with both sides. <laughs> so um, there's a certain amount of playing both sides that goes on with these powerful lobbying groups. They wanna make sure that you know, Democrats and Republicans are um, with them in some way. and And certainly we've seen that Democratic and Republican Congressional staffers and members of Congress have gone on to become lobbyists in the health sector. So, yes, it, uh, if there's anything that's bipartisan, it's sort of taking lobbying jobs with powerful industry groups. That's that's one of the most bipartisan things there is.
0: You heard it here first, folks. The revolving door from government to lobbying is one of the most bipartisan things there is.
3: Yeah. So. Oftentimes, these lobbying groups like to hire um, people who are closely connected to the most sort of powerful politicians in Washington.
0: As of January, the Democrats are in charge. So who runs the partnership?
3: Lauren Crawford Shaber is the leader of the uh, partnership for America's Healthcare Future. She is a private health insurance lobbyist. And she previously worked with the uh, Obama administration and um, helped with Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential bid. So this is someone who like has a lot of cachet with some of the more influential Democratic Party leaders, you know, making her sort of an obvious choice uh, when you're trying to influence the Democratic Party's direction on healthcare.
0: Who's Lauren Crawford Shaver? Well, according to her LinkedIn, she's been at a company called Forbes Tate Partners since 2017. What is Forbes Tate Partners? Well, it's a group named for Jeff Forbes and Dan Tate Jr. Jeff Forbes is a guy who, among other things, was previously Montana Senator Max Baucus's chief of staff. Max Baucus, if you remember nothing else about him, is the guy who screwed up healthcare reform in 2010. A good summary of Max Baucus's career is that when he retired in 2014, both progressives and, I kid you not, the Tea Party claimed victory. There's another half of Forbes Tate, and that's Dan Tate Jr., who worked in the Clinton administration as special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. There's one more Tate at Tate Forbes, and that's Elizabeth Tate Bennett, who most recently worked in the Trump administration, and before that worked for Scott Pruitt and Mitch McConnell. This is literally the swamp, which gets us to an important point. Lots of very smart people have been arguing about how to fix healthcare in the United States for decades, and reasonable people might argue that the best way to fix it is incrementally, by building on the Affordable Care Act. Other reasonable people want things like the public option or Medicare for All. You can figure out for yourself which of these options you like, but it's important that you're aware of the groups that are attempting to move you in one direction or another. So, who dreamed up the idea of the partnership? A guy named Chip Kahn, president and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals, has said the partnership was his idea. Kahn told Politico, quote, The reason for the invention of the partnership was that the Democratic Party was forgetting what it had done, and in our view, going off on a tangent that would shake everything up. In this country, incremental change and pragmatic change has always been the style. End quote. I'm going to play you a piece of tape you already heard. Here's Carl Everselstrom.
3: You know... The healthcare sector really is lobbying to keep the status quo in check um, because in a lot of cases they have written the rules that govern our healthcare system today. Um, So they have a vested interest in keeping those rules in place.
0: The partnership is new, but these lobbying efforts definitely aren't. Chip Kahn has been president and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals since 2001. That was 20 years ago. According to Politico, in 2011, Chip Khan was making well over a million dollars a year. Ten years later, it's reasonable to assume he's making even more. That's generally how these things work. But it's also fair to assume that Chip Khan might have made more in 2011 because of what happened in 2010.
3: During the debate over the Affordable Care Act, these industries came together to really say, like, we we don't want a public option. <laughs> They also came together to oppose Clinton's universal healthcare plan back in 1993. The health care sector has come together before to kind of stop these big health care overhauls um, and to try to like either kill them or water them down as they did with Obama's plan. So yeah, I mean, there's a reason we haven't overhauled the health care system. It's because these groups are, are powerful, they're well funded, and they're, they're really good at what they do.
0: And it goes even further back than 1993. We'll go into how the partnership is just the latest iteration of the healthcare industry fighting to keep things the way they are after this. Welcome back. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. I want to talk a bit about how pervasive the arguments made against healthcare reform have been throughout American history. In 1961, thousands of doctors' wives got a package in the mail and a note, quote, The Women's Auxiliary has been charged with the most important assignment in history. Physicians have asked doctors' wives to assume full responsibility of Operation Coffee Cup, an all-out effort to stimulate as many letters as possible to Congress opposing socialized medicine and its menace, end quote. The mailer came with a record, as in like a vinyl, featuring then-just-an-actor Ronald Reagan.
2: This threat is with us and at the moment is more imminent. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it.
0: Reagan, as always, is just wonderful to listen to, even if you disagree with him. He goes on to tell a pretty sobering
2: story. All of us can see what happens once you establish the precedent that the government can determine a man's working place and his working methods, determine his employment. From here, it's a short step to all the rest of socialism— determining his pay and pretty soon your son won't decide when he's in school where he will go or what he will do for a living he will wait for the government to tell him where he will go to work and what he will do
0: that seems like a pretty long
2: step but whatever what can we do about this well you and I can do a great deal we can write to our congressmen to our senators we can say right now that we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms And at the moment, the key issue is we do not want socialized medicine. Operation Coffee
0: Cup was the work of the American Medical Association, one of the oldest doctor's associations in the United States. The group does some political lobbying and, as you may have guessed, was a founding member of the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, although they have since departed. Back to Reagan. The legislation he's urging listeners to fight was called the King Anderson Bill, and was supported by then-President John F. Kennedy. Kennedy had prioritized fixing health care in the United States, and this is before Medicare, which wasn't signed into law until 1965. King Anderson was a bill designed to help seniors and expand the role of the federal government in caring for older folks. The American Medical Association called King Anderson the, quote, most deadly challenge ever faced by the medical profession. The AMA formed a political action committee to fight it and were joined by health insurers. King Anderson didn't pass, but Medicare did a few years later. Anyway, why am I talking about this? Well, because things like Operation Coffee Cup are part of the reason we have the system that we do today.
4: We have the health care system we have today because of the interaction of interest groups over time.
0: That's Dr. Melissa Thomason.
4: My name is Melissa Thomason. I'm the chair and Julian Lang Professor of Economics at the Farmer School of Business at Miami University. And I'm an economic historian who studies the origins of the healthcare system and the health insurance system in the US. And what that means is that I'm trained as an economist But I like to look at the past to understand the present.
0: Which is also exactly what we do on this show. So, how does something like Operation Coffee Cup relate to the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future?
4: So, in contrast to another country where the government got involved very early on and just put in, say, a national system like they have in in Great Britain, our government didn't really. Instead, private interest groups, namely the American Hospital Association and the American Medical Association, really had a lot of influence in shaping how the system is. And they said, look, we have this private system that covers most people, and so we don't really need a government system.
0: So what does that mean in terms of how the system works? How would you describe, at a basic level, the healthcare system as it exists today in the United States?
4: And this is like one of those zingers, like you have five minutes to explain the whole health care history and current future of the health care system, right?
0: I know you guys. Can you imagine answering a question like that?
4: When you would have a lack of central design, then market forces are put at work, right? And so you have hospitals arguing for plans that serve their interests, doctors arguing for a system that serves their interest. Government sort of ended up playing a role that helped people falling between the cracks, but in a way so as not to upset what hospitals and physicians really thought would benefit them.
0: It's not all bad, but a lot of it is.
4: So we have, as you probably know, the most expensive healthcare system in the world. The U.S. spends more both in dollar terms and on a per-person basis. We spend more than any other country in the world. On one hand, what that gives us is really fantastic technology. You know, we've all benefited from robot surgery and chemotherapy and, you know, even like witness the rapid development of these COVID vaccines. Now the cost of that is exactly that. One, it's tremendously expensive and we spend a lot of money and it's not always clear that we're getting our money's worth. And the other cost, is that a lot of people can't afford it.
0: And people not being able to afford health care is a huge cost. But that's where health insurance comes in. What is health insurance?
4: <laughs> well, you know, that should be a simple question, but it's really not. I think because if we think about insurance that most of us are familiar with, like homeowners insurance or car insurance, right? The idea behind your automobile policy, for example, is that Cars are sort of expensive, and if you get in a big wreck and your car is destroyed, not a lot of people have the money to replace their car. But if everybody puts some money into a big pool, and then on average, maybe like one out of every hundred people in that pool loses their car, there should be enough money to replace that person's car. But health insurance is a little bit different. It it has features of that. That is, if you need a surgery or if you, for example, get COVID and you're in the ICU for three weeks, that would be crazy expensive. And so it's set up to cover big expenses like that. But it's also evolved over time to cover even sort of minor things like um, routine doctor's visits, the healthcare equivalent of a car's oil change. And in that way, it is a different kind of insurance than car insurance or homeowner's insurance.
0: And this is where you get the scary ads. This
4: was covered under our old plan.
0: Oh Yeah, that was a good
1: one, wasn't it? Things are changing, and not all for the better. The government may force us to pick from a few healthcare plans designed by government bureaucrats.
4: Having choices we don't like
0: is no choice at all.
1: They choose.
0: We lose. This ad from over 30 years ago is from a series created by that guy Chip Khan I mentioned earlier, the one who said he dreamed up the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. If this episode feels like a conspiracy board with red string and thumbtacks, that's because it is, and all of these things are connected. By the way, JFK tried to reform healthcare, and Lee Harvey Oswald's wife was a pharmacist. Back to Professor Thomason. What's the genesis of private health insurance in the United States?
4: When it first developed in the late 1920s and early 30s, it was because as technology was improving, the cost of, tr- of treatment started to rise, and people started having a hard time paying their hospital bills. And so the hospitals thought, well, hey, you know, what if we charged them just a little bit every month, kind of like healthcare layaway? And then if they need the services over the period of year, we can, we can cover that.
0: This makes sense, right? Everything does when it's a one-to-one relationship.
4: The first kind of Blue Cross hospital insurance was developed by Baylor University Hospital, in 1927, and they approached a group of Dallas teachers and they said, Hey, we're gonna offer you this kind of layaway plan. You pay us 50 cents a month, right? $6 a year. And then if you get sick over the next year, you can have three weeks in the hospital in exchange for that $6. And because of the depression, because it was a pretty good deal and it helped hospitals pay their bills, these plans started really growing. And then eventually, Physicians won in on the game. And then, you know, at the time in the 30s, there weren't a lot of effective drugs to help people, so pharmaceuticals weren't really involved. But eventually, when we talk about medical treatment, there are lots of big money interests involved. And each one of these has shaped the healthcare system over time.
0: You probably see where this is going.
4: The subscription model took off because it helped hospitals' bottom line, and then they got organized. Obviously, you don't want a bunch of hospitals offering competing plans with each other. You know, competition tends to lower profit. And so they were organized under the Blue Cross umbrella. And they sort of operated at a state level and like state level monopolies of hospital insurance. The physicians started doing the same thing in the 1940s. And it really wasn't until the hospitals and physicians showed commercial insurance companies that you could make a profit doing this. That the commercial insurance companies, right? The Aetnas and Cygnas of the world got involved. And that was really after World War after World War II. And and then it became more of a free-for-all.
0: That more of a free-for-all is pretty much what we have today. In the history Melissa Thomason is relating, you can see how healthcare as a thing is really developing at the same time as the options for regular people to pay for it. I asked her about early attempts to fix healthcare and institute a system that looks like what they have in Canada and the United Kingdom. Yes, socialized medicine.
4: There was a group trying to push for state-level state insurance, you know, so everybody would have insurance offered through their state. And that one never got a lot of leverage, and they didn't really even have to market that hard because people were like, well, why would we pay for that, right? Nobody was going to hospitals, nobody needed doctors, and so the plan just kind of died to death. It was even put on a referendum on the ballot in California and the voters voted it down. Like they just there didn't even need to be people lobbying against it.
0: Thanks a lot, California.
4: By the 1930s, though, the situation had started to change and, and medical care had gotten expensive enough that right, doctors and hospitals are seeing people not paying their bills and they're turning to Blue Cross and Blue Shield to collect money from patients. And it was actually um included like Franklin Delano Roosevelt had included it as something they should study when they were developing Social Security in 1935. And the doctors were completely opposed to a government system of insurance. And it was initially in the proposed Social Security bill, but the AMA went all out against it. It was really clear that Social Security would not be passed with a national health insurance plan, so they struck it. And we saw the same thing in the 1940s. Truman tried again, and in fact, The AMA started publishing pamphlets talking about socialized medicine, and they said it was the first step in socialization of everything else. If not just medicine, why not farms? Because diet's really important. Why not the corner grocery? Food is important, right? See, if we socialize this, we'll socialize everything.
0: Just like Reagan said. By the time we get to the 1960s, the system had gotten so entrenched that only partial reforms were acceptable or possible.
4: It was really quiet until Medicare in 1965, and again, it wasn't national health insurance, right? This won't change health insurance for the majority of people. It'll just help out, you know, people who no longer can work. And so it was acceptable because it was a very small carve-out of the population.
0: Here's a really juicy little nugget. And it shows how even reforming the system, in part, drove cost of care to rise.
4: When I was in graduate school in Arizona in the early 1990s, somebody on my committee had actually worked with the Social Security Administration in 1965, when they had set up Medicare. And when Medicare was first implemented, literally what the government told doctors and hospitals was that, "Will you tell us what it costs you to treat these people, and we'll just reimburse you?" And as you can imagine, the government just asking what it costs meant that over time those costs really grew quickly, and there was a lot of rising costs in healthcare because of that. I always wonder what would have happened if we had thought about a different way of reimbursing doctors and hospitals. But the reason we didn't, according uh, to this professor that I had, was because there was substantial fear that if they didn't cave to physician and hospital demands, then there would have been no Medicare.
0: Most of you probably aren't on Medicare you probably have health insurance from your work, employer-based insurance. And that's another thread I want to pick out. How did that happen? Why is healthcare coverage tied to employment for so many Americans?
4: Let's go back to that Baylor subscription model. And let's think about why an insurance company would worry about selling health insurance. So insurance companies felt like, at the time, particularly in the 1920s, they couldn't just look at somebody and know if they were sick or not. And... Kind of think about it. If you knew you had a house that had really faulty electrical wiring, um, an insurance company might not want to insure you because you're at a high risk. And if they charged you a low premium not knowing that, they would lose money on you. It's the same in healthcare. So these insurance companies said, there's not really a clear way we can insure health. If we offer this, only sick people are going to want it and we're going to lose money. And the reason that the Baylor plan worked the head of the Baylor Hospital had been a former superintendent of schools in Dallas and had worked developing a plan for Dallas teachers, like a long-term disability plan, a sick leave kind of thing. And so his first group was actually to reach out to those teachers and see if they'd like to work with Baylor to come up with a plan. And the underlying reason for its success is that really, if you're ensuring a group of people healthy enough to work, Chances are they don't have some unobserved condition that makes them uninsurable. And so selling insurance to groups of employees really helped first Blue Cross and Blue Shield and later those insurance companies be able to sell something that might not otherwise work.
0: It's literally employers vetting their employees as healthy enough to work and thus healthy enough for private insurers to make a profit off of. And that's the problem with health insurance – Healthy people are profitable, and sick people caused money. Because for-profit forces built the system we have today, the people who generally need healthcare the most are often those who have been left out. So you have a couple big groups of people. People who are already covered in some way by the government, people who get insurance from their employer, and people who now buy private plans through the public Obamacare marketplace. But what about everybody else? Enter the public option.
4: So a public option is just, let's say if a private person who's not 65, which is the age that you are eligible for Medicare, might be able to say buy into Medicare or another government-run insurance system versus just purchase a plan that's operated by a private insurance company like Centene or Cigna on the marketplace.
0: The public option is just what it says it is, a publicly run insurance plan to cover the uninsured. It's distinct from what is available now on the Affordable Care Act marketplace, that's Obamacare, and is primarily designed to cover people who aren't covered already by the government and who don't have employer-based health insurance. Think back to that political ad I played for you earlier. The things the woman didn't want were Medicare for all, Medicare buy-in, and the public option. Why wouldn't she want those things?
4: I think some people have really great private insurance and they want to keep it and they fear the unknown. I mean, maybe that they've had bad experiences, for example, with the government doesn't provide a lot of direct care here, but maybe like the VA and they like their private doctor better and they worry that that if the government took over, everything would look like the VA. Or maybe, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are risk averse and resistant to change. and there's also, I think, an idea in our culture that, that the private way, and that you can see this with Blue Cross and Blue Shield and all the opposition to reform over time, the private way is the better way. The government's just going to muck it up and it'll be really expensive and not very good.
0: Really expensive and not very good? Sounds a lot like the system we have today. So in terms of these major interests in healthcare, from insurers to pharmaceuticals to hospitals, and uh, increasingly these days tech can you talk us through the moneyed interests that populate this, th- this space? Who's most interested in, in keeping things the way they are?
4: Well, certainly the money slash the vested interests, right? I think we've seen that hospitals, physicians, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, basically anybody who's making a pretty decent profit right now is invested in keeping things the way they are. And I think actually we've heard a little bit less from physicians than we have in the, say, half a dozen reform attempts over the course of the 20th century. I think physicians are starting to feel the pressure of trying to keep lower costs, and they're finally starting to realize that change might be in the air. But clearly, insurance companies are worried about a public option. They're worried that if government offers a cheaper option, everybody will just go pick that, and they'll already run out of business. And so insurance companies have a vested interest in not wanting government to, quote unquote, compete with them. And again, like before, right, when we don't want government to compete, we let the private companies have the majority of the business, and then the business that nobody wants, older, sicker people who are really expensive, and poorer people who may or may not be really expensive but can't afford anything, we let government take care of those groups. And that would be Medicare and Medicaid.
0: Private for-profit forces have created an environment in which they profit off of the healthiest people. While government, literally all of us who pay taxes, pay for poor people, older people, and people who are sick. Which, to be clear, are the groups that it isn't easy to profit off of, and who are often the people who need healthcare the most. When we're back, we're gonna talk to a physician who actually works with patients. And hear about how he thinks healthcare in the United States needs to change. More after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're looking at the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. The current supergroup, think Traveling Wilberries of Evil, that is part of a great historical tradition in the United States. Moneyed interests resisting reform of America's extremely complicated and dysfunctional healthcare system. We've talked to a reporter and an economic historian, but what does an actual physician think about all of this? Is it fair to say that one reason we have the system we do is that literally everybody is making money off of it?
1: Well, that might be a little harsh, but uh, we have a lot of conflicts.
0: That's Dr. Eric Topol.
1: I'm uh, Dr. Eric Topol. I work at the Scripps Research Institute. Um, I'm a cardiologist, uh, physician, as well as a, a scientist and work on uh, COVID, as well as uh, a lot of work in artificial intelligence. Back to
0: the forces that shape the system, I'm being a little harsh on.
1: If you look at it from every which way, there's not a lot of motivation to change because this universal healthcare model is so much different then the fact that we have an employer model and most of that is through fee for service. So it's such a radical change to go to a model, which is the one used in most other countries around the world, particularly ones that are uh, industrialized developed countries. They have this, every human has the right to healthcare model. And it's so different, so radically different and better than the one we have. So the conflicts account for the unwillingness to change. You've got the insurers that are doing really well. You have the hospitals, you have, you know, the professional services, and that's not just physicians, but it's all the other uh, people in the healthcare workforce. It's a system that's embedded now in the United States, and it would be hard, as we saw when the Affordable Care Act had to, troubles to get through. And that was a relatively modest change from what we need, uh, it will be hard to achieve what we should have, which is the model that everyone gets true care as as a human right.
0: It's one thing when politicians talk about health care as a human right. But what has Dr. Topol seen in his experience as a physician that informs this belief?
1: Well, I've been... uh, working as a doctor doctor for over 30 years, and I've watched a degradation in care, uh, both being on the physician and on the patient side. Uh, When I first got out of medical school, you know, late 70s, the relationship between patients and their doctor was intimate and a lot of trust. There was a real presence when they got together, and uh, it was a vital, uh, precious relationship. That has basically eroded markedly over these decades because uh, physicians have been squeezed to see patients more quickly uh, by administrators, the overlords of medicine. Medicine became a huge business. And at the same time, uh, there's been the worsening of inequities, whereby tens of millions of Americans don't even have real access to health care, real insurance. And so this is a combination of different problems. And the sum of it is that we have, compared to all of the so-called OECD countries, we are the worst in terms of our outcomes.
0: Health outcomes include things like being alive after a procedure. But what's this squeeze all about?
1: Well, primarily through the squeeze. That is, uh, the so-called... RVUs, relative value units. And so you were basically judged as a physician, uh, how many RVUs, kind of like billable hours of a lawyer. And so you had to see more patients in any unit time, or if you're a radiologist, read more scans. If you're a pathologist, read more slides. You had to just generate revenue instead of caring for patients. And then when electronic health records came along, It made things even worse because they were set up as a billing entity rather than helping to provide care for patients. And so they basically are an administrative burden and doctors are basically become data clerks uh, entering all this data for their billing rather than actually caring for patients, which is what we all wanted to do when we went into medicine.
0: Physicians as people who put together bills happens largely because of the fee-for-service situation Dr. Topol mentioned earlier. Fee-for-service is basically just quantity over quality, doing more procedures or services to generate a larger bill, regardless of the outcome for the patient. In part, a problem like fee-for-service, for for Dr. Topol, points clearly to a solution, universal health care.
1: Well, essentially, the United States is a fee-for-service mentality. So what happens is, if you do more services, you get more fees, which is the last thing we want. We want the people to be cared for on their needs, uh, without regard to the cost, and uh, with ideal being parsimonious. That is not to do unnecessary things, but to do the right things for the right patient at the right time. So we have a skewed system whereby many patients, a significant proportion, Uh, get much too much services because it basically is generating a lot more uh, revenue. And that is a bad model. Most places that have universal health care, you don't ever do things for revenue uh, reasons. You do it for what it takes to provide the best care for that patient. And we don't have that system here. And that's what puts us in a terrible position.
0: Which is exactly what you'd expect from a system that was developed in large part by the groups that make money off of the system. And like we've talked about, President Obama and Speaker Pelosi were barely able to pass the Affordable Care Act.
1: Unfortunately, the forces now are against that. Even just the slight progress that's been made has been with tremendous resistance. I I don't even know how many times there are attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act and that was at least a step in the right direction. But what we've learned is that this is political. This is you know, big business. And if we want to do it right, uh, we have to acknowledge once and for all that all people have a right to healthcare. Uh, that's a human right. And that we have to make a system that provides that and provides true care of patients. That will help get rid of the burnout among physicians and nurses and clinicians, because most of that burnout is related to the sense that you can't care for patients because you're just so overwhelmed. So if we want to fix both the professional side and the patient side, we have to change. And even though it's a lot of resistance and there's these political and business uh, issues that have to be confronted, it doesn't mean we can't do it. It just means we have to, we have to want to do it. and. Um, it's a major confrontation that has yet to occur, but it's inevitable that we move towards a universal health care system eventually.
0: I want to go back to Carl Evers-Hillstrom from the Center for Responsive Politics, who you heard at the top of the episode.
3: There's a reason we haven't overhauled the system, and it's because we have these powerful groups that have been around for a really long time and who have built up uh, decades of influence and who have a lot of different ways to influence politicians.
0: Yeah, that's what we've been talking about for the past 45 minutes. Groups like the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future have been around for a long time. They aren't going anywhere. And they employ people who are in the least collegial with some of the most powerful politicians in the United States, Republicans and Democrats. In fact, the Affordable Care Act probably only happened because these groups were okay with it.
3: The healthcare industry really, especially the pharmaceutical industry, uh, really gave Obama a, a deal and they said, uh, we'll take a few little concessions here to avoid a public option, to avoid stronger restrictions on drug pricing. And a lot of experts generally think that the healthcare players could have easily killed Obamacare if it was as progressive as, say, Obama had promised um, back when he was running for president
0: which is where a guy like Chip Kahn comes in, the one who says he thought up the partnership for America's healthcare future, and who's been president and CEO of the Federation of American Hospitals since 2001.
3: So, I mean, you really have a lot of the same lobbying players who have been around for a very long time and that who have amassed a lot of power in Washington because they've been around so long, because they've basically written a lot of the laws that govern our healthcare system right now. You know, and I think a lot of times it's hard to argue for overhauling things compared to keeping the laws that are already on the books. So I think a lot of these groups have a lot of leverage to say, look, these are laws already on the books. We don't need to go crazy changing anything. Let's just make sort of minor changes. Let's not have these sort of big overhauls.
0: But it's also important to talk about what might change if we got an equitable system like Medicare for All. Here's Melissa Thomason.
4: Well, I mean, I hate to sound like an economist, but there are real trade-offs, right? So what are the pros of Medicare for all? Well, it would make it easier for people from all walks of life to get health care coverage, right? And again, the devil's in the details. I think the trade-offs would be it's probably going to look more like a Canadian system. So there's going to be some trade-off in innovation. There's going to be some trade-off in how quickly you get care. And from an economic point of view right now, Medicare hasn't been that great at holding down costs. Like the current way we we fund Medicare has been fairly expensive. And so it's not really clear that it would save money.
0: We've just told you one side of the story here, which is the money side of the story. The other side is the people side. Don't forget that. But Melissa Thomason is at least somewhat optimistic. Why?
4: Well, unlike a lot of my dismal science friends, I actually tend to be a little optimistic here. And maybe part of that is the ACA. I think it was quite an achievement. The fact that President Obama was able to get that legislation passed when he did was indicative to me that employers, for example, are really looking for some changes, that there's an acknowledgement that the system, that the costs are becoming insurmountable, and that there is unequal distribution of care. And as, you know, with Berkshire Hathaway, with Amazon, with some of these other um, private parties trying to, to change, with tech, with telemedicine, I think these are all factors that are that will lead to eventual change. And what it looks like, I have no idea. But I do think that more parties are playing now and I think that's a good thing.
0: In January 2020, before COVID 19 was even deemed a pandemic, the nonpartisan, nonprofit Kaiser Family Foundation found that 56% of Americans support a national Medicare for all health plan. 68% support a government administered public option. That's a lot of Americans. On the other hand, healthcare completely dominates money and politics. Nothing else comes close, even the military industrial complex. So what we have is a lot of Americans versus a lot of money. The Partnership for America's Healthcare Future isn't on your side. It's on the money's side, which is about profit, not about ensuring that healthcare works for all of us. Like I said earlier, there are a lot of options here, from radical reimaginings of the system, to Medicare for all, to the public option, to incremental change. If you can, take some time to learn about these ideas, beyond this episode. There are a lot of smart people working on this stuff, and in one way or another, it will impact all of us. On the next episode of Who Is, we're going back to people, well, a person in particular. We're looking at a guy who ran for mayor of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, after an irate citizen gunned down his predecessor at a community meeting. A guy who went on to become governor of Iowa, and who has now run the United States Department of Agriculture twice. It's Tom Vilsack. Next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests. Carl Evers-Hillstrom, a money and politics reporter at OpenSecrets.org, the online home of the Center for Responsive Politics. Melissa Thomason, Chair and Julian Lang Professor of Economics at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where she studies the economic history of health insurance and healthcare. And Dr. Eric Topol, a physician, researcher, and author of many books, including most recently Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Dr. Topol is also founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Steve Cooper. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Ixaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. This has been Who is a podcast from Now This. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And hey, why not tell your friends? If there's somebody you'd like to hear us do an episode about, feel free to reach out to me on social media at
4: snmrw.